know he's going to do a great job. Will you help me give a warm Valley Point welcome to Dr. Joe Modica. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. This is Agitival Fatigue Part 2. No, it's not. <laughs> but it's good to be back with you uh, today. Thank you for that kind introduction. When my niece, Karina, was getting ready to go to college, she had selected five colleges and wasn't sure where she would be going. And I, she, they came over, her family came over, my sister and brother-in-law, they came over for Thanksgiving. And we sat down and I said, well, Karina, tell me your five choices. And she listed them. And I said, well, I'm going to guess where you're going to college. And I'm going to put my guess in an envelope and sign my name on the, on the fold. I'm going to put it in the drawer. And then whoever, if I win this contest, uh, you will buy me something. And if you win, if I don't guess correctly, I'll buy you something. So that's what we did. She gave me her five. I thought I put it on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, licked the envelope, and then signed my name on the back so no one would know it was tampered with. Well, months and months and months went by, and uh, she decided where to go to college. I had a little bit of an unction because it was the same college my sister and brother-in-law went, but <laughs> it was an unction. And so when she came over, um, that evening um, to kind of see if I had guessed correctly. Now, some of you who are old enough will remember Johnny Carson and the great Kreskin when he takes the envelope with the, with the turban. And, and so I took the envelope and I went like this and ripped off the end and pulled it out, the response. And it was correct. I had guessed the college that she would be entering in in the fall. So then she said to me, well, Uncle Joe, what do I owe you, right? What do I owe you? And this is what I asked her for. <laughs> I love Almond Joy. I really do. To a fault, I said, if you can buy me this, I was expecting just one candy bar. Actually, that size, exactly that size. <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, that is not 220 calories, that's 2,220 calories. But I love Almond Joy. And what she was so kind to do is um, she bought me the small ones that you can get in bags. And she bought me a couple of bags, which is not a good thing to do for me. Because when the candy is small, you, you fool yourself into thinking you can eat a lot of them, and it's fine, like there's not a problem. And there was a problem. But nevertheless, I enjoy Almond Joy, right? That coconut chocolate with the almond in there, just delicious. In some ways, it brings me a little joy. I'm a little happy when I eat the Almond Joy. I'm eating, you know, and one after the other after the other. You know, it's interesting how we use words in culture. I mean, they labeled a candy Almond Joy. Ah. And you know, sometimes the way we use words can betray us. It can be confusing, right? The joy of the Lord is my strength, Nehemiah 8.10. Almond joy. <laughs> you know where I'm leaning, right? You know where I'm going, the almond joy. But, right? We need to be careful with words, not to paralyze us. We don't want to be paralyzed. 
but we want to be able to convey the depth of a word like joy, like joy. It's an amazing word. Marilyn McIntyre, in her book, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, she says, caring for words is a moral issue. The way we, we care for words is a moral issue, right? And so joy is both a biblical concept and it's also something we need to care about. As people who follow Jesus, we need to care about what joy is, what does it look like in our day-to-day -day lives, how do we partner with God on this concept of joy. I was a, a college student in the 1970s, which should tell you just a lot about, if you know anything about the 1970s, and I was a psychology major. Now, that was not the first choice. There were many other choices before getting that, but that summarizes the 1970s. I was a psychology major, I think, in part because it was one of the most popular majors in the country during that decade, right? Coming out of the 1960s with all the turmoil, the Vietnam War, assassination of Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy, right? People, uh, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, that all happened towards the end of the 60s. Go to college in the 70s, and I guess through all the worry and concern and finding out who we are, a lot of young people like myself majored in psychology. Not a problem, right? I'm, I'm not a psychologist. It happened to be something I enjoyed. I do remember a course I was in, a couple of courses. One was um, what was called at that time abnormal psychology. Now, if you've ever taken a course like that, they may have a different title for that. I knew every chapter that the professor was lecturing on, I had that symptom. <laughs> oh my gads, I was a college student thinking, oh my, I'm depressed, I have bipolar, all these other things. That was not helpful uh, for me personally, but there was a class that I took and it seemed like as I got into my psychology major, most of our classes began sitting around in a circle. Have you ever been in a class sitting around the circle and we were gonna share our feelings? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I can do that once or twice. I mean, I grew up in an Italian-American household. We know about feelings. They're not always positive feelings, but we know about them. I can do that, but if you're doing that before every class and you're spending copious amount of time, tell us how you feel. <sighs> I'm thinking, oh my. So the professor one time said, tell me, an object in nature, how you're feeling like an object in nature today. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna have to make something up. I don't know, what do you mean object in nature? I grew up in Queens, in Brooklyn. Asphalt is the only object of nature I know. I mean, I don't know, like, what. so as they're going around, have you ever been in a, in a group that you're, you're thinking about what you're gonna say and not really listening and you're trying to think, okay, I got three more people before me, I gotta say something. This is what I said in the 1970s, how I was feeling in one class. I said, this morning, I'm feeling like a babbling brook going hither and yonder. The professor said, Mr. Modica, that's wonderful. I'm saying to myself, I don't even know what I said. <laughs> feelings are good, feelings are important, but feelings are not who we are. Feelings are not who we are. 
but they're important, so I don't want to suggest they're not. But I think what happened with psychology in the 1970s, it was so feelings-driven that we oftentimes forgot some of the essential components of what it means to be a human being, personhood, issues of things like virtues, things like uh, civic duty and so forth. I wish I would have heard more in classes on psychology about what does it mean to be fully human rather than getting in touch with my feelings, <laughs> which is okay. It's okay to get in touch with your feelings, but feelings sometimes betray us, sometimes betray us. There was a very popular song in the 80s, so we're going decade by decade. <laughs> we'll get to the uh, 2020 soon. 2022 was a song that I think summarized my college experience. It's a pretty popular song. We're going to just listen to a clip of it. It has nearly 250 million views on YouTube. Maybe popular. So we're going to just going to want you to listen to it. Just a little clip, and this kind of summarizes what I experienced as a psychology major in the 1970s. Let's let's listen. song I wrote, you might want to sing it note for note, don't worry, <laughs> be happy, in every life we have some trouble, <laughs> when you worry you make it double, don't worry, be happy, don't worry. All right, don't worry, be happy. I thought I would do that dance across the stage and I wouldn't be able to finish this sermon this morning, so I decided not to. Isn't it interesting how we use the word happy in our culture? Oftentimes we think that's joy, right? We talk about happy hour, happy meal. Coca-Cola in, in 2017 had uh, a commercial say, uh, saying, open a Coke, open happiness. Don Draper from TV's Mad Men Memorably said in one episode that advertising is based on one thing, happiness. We even had a TV show, Happy Days. 11 seasons, we were happy, at least most of the time. I remember growing up in Queens with my grandparents, and oftentimes when I used to, they lived on the bottom apartment, we lived on top. Oftentimes they would tell my, my, myself, my brother and sister, remember, we don't want to make you, we don't want you to be happy. That's a great suggestion to tell your grandchildren. We want you to be good, but we don't want you to be happy. Don't worry about being happy. That's not our goal as grandparents, to make you happy. You know, there is a difference between happiness and joy. And the book by Frazee, the one that some of you have been working through this series and maybe have read, I want to just highlight, it's really important that we kind of align ourselves. And then we're going to talk about biblical joy briefly. But look at what Frazee says about the differences, right? Happiness is a state of mind while joy is a mindset, right? Happiness comes and goes, phrase they say, where, where joy can be constant. Happiness is dependent, oftentimes on circumstances, while joy is independent. 
Happiness is conditional while joy is unconditional. Now we could spend time unpacking each of those sentences, which I won't as much as just set the frame. And we're gonna take a look at a couple of scripture passages that I think help to demonstrate, I think, what would be a biblical approach to understanding of joy. And we're only gonna do just a, a scratch of the surface this morning. What's interesting too, some of you may know of the New York Times columnist, David Brooks. I've mentioned him before. He's an excellent writer. He's done a book called The Road to Character a few years back. He wrote a sequel to that called The Second Mountain, A Quest for the Moral Life. And I'd like to put up that slide. This is David Brooks. And I just wanted to highlight, as I was reading through this, uh, David Brooks, um, a couple of quotes from there. And I think it's really important. He says, happiness involves a victory for self, an expansion of the self, Happiness comes as we move towards our own personal goals when things go our way. That's happiness. However, joy tends to involve some transcendence of the self. It's when the skin barrier between you and another, some other person or entity fades away and you feel fused together. Joy often involves self-forgetting. I like that. Joy often involves self-forgetting. And then lastly, the next slide, please. We can help create happiness, but we are seized by joy. I think Brooks is onto something. Oftentimes, again, confusing happiness and joy. Sometimes they are conflated so that we're expecting joy, biblical joy, to make us feel a certain way. And of course, it doesn't mean you can't feel happy with a sense of biblical joy but there's something else going on as we follow Jesus. There's something else going on. So what is biblical joy? Friends, as you could imagine, I'm gonna give just a, a 30,000 foot view, and then we'll take a look quickly at a couple of scriptures just to kind of anchor in some observations. But when you read the scriptures, related words to joy in the Bible include delight, gladness, rejoicing. So the scriptures are saturated with this concept of joy, right? Um, Psalm 47.1, clap your hands, all you peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Proverbs 10.28, the hope of the righteousness ends in joy, but the expectation of the wicked comes to nothing. Isaiah 9.3, you have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as people exult when dividing plunder. Obviously, I can go on and on. There's many scriptures that have the word joy, delight, gladness in it. The thing that I'm drawn to this morning in our time is to take a, a quick look at two New Testament scriptures, brief passages that I think help us, at least helped me <laughs> in preparation, to kind of wrap my mind around joy, right? And to try to distinguish it from happiness. Not to say that a joyful person can't feel happy, but you know, some of the most joyful people I met don't feel happy about their situation. And that's the dilemma. And also that's the paradox that you can have joy in circumstances that are bleak. You can have joy in times of tumult and trouble. And that's what we're kind of grappling with there. Okay, let's take a look at two texts the first one comes from the Apostle Paul, and it comes from his earliest letter in the New Testament, and it's the letter 
to the Galatians. You probably know this little letter. It's, it's fascinating for what Paul is addressing. This, this letter went to, uh, a, church, uh, to a region uh, now called Asia Minor. So think about Paul, one of his missionary travels. He goes to the, to the region of Galatia, all these providences, and now he writes a letter back to the people to try to help them know what are the things necessary to follow Jesus. And so he does this, and this might be his earliest letter. He wrote about 13 or so letters, so this is an early one. And he's trying to help people understand the gospel, which is always a good thing to understand. What is the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, particularly as the gospel went out to involve people who were not Jews, right? And normally, when we think of the earliest movement of Jesus, we think of a Jewish movement, by and large, but when the gospel message goes out to the Mediterranean world, it includes now people from all different backgrounds, all from coming out of all different religions. So Paul, towards the end of his letter, tells folks, I want to make a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. So that's basically his contention. He wants to demonstrate that there are some things followers of Jesus need to expect, uh, to, to, to be part of, to show, and there's things that we are to avoid, the works of the, of the flesh. We're not going to talk about the works of the flesh this morning, but many of you have seen the fruit of the Spirit, the listing of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, I'm going to read it, and then you'll see where joy is situated as a fruit of the Spirit. So Paul says, by contrast, because he just talked about the works of the flesh, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And translations might have little nuances with different words there. There is no law against such things. Against such things. So here we have the, the concept of joy as, a, as the fruit of the Spirit. Now you'll notice immediately in this text that it doesn't say fruits of the Spirit in plural, it doesn't say fruits, as if you could say, I'll take a, you know, a banana, a pear, and an apple, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. I think that Paul is suggesting by the metaphor is that it's really one thing that we espouse uh, to, and it's really the first word there is love. The key fruit is love, which then all the others will be byproducts of this work of the Spirit in our life. I know sometimes when you get this at a Christian bookstore, nothing against Christian bookstore, they have it like stringed up with different fruit and all that, right? And, and, but it's not like you pick and choose, well, you know, I'm going to just do the, the kindness thing, but you know that self-control, I'm still going to order on Amazon impulsively, right? Um, no, 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 we have to work, it's, there's no choice here, we're all, we're all moving towards the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But the first one is love, which is the generative, the origin of everything that we do. And the next one, which is a, an immediate byproduct of understanding love, is what? Joy. Isn't that interesting? That joy takes second place. Um, it doesn't come at the end. It doesn't come you know, third or fourth out of the list, it comes right after love. There's something about joy that is connected to love. And so if we're not loving well, and what I mean by that is 
loving God and loving neighbor, if that's not part of the equation, you're probably going to be more miserable than you need to be. It's going to be hard to, uh, to be joyful, even in difficult circumstances. Paul here is trying to show that this is what Christians are to espouse to, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Now, you might ask, the fruit of the Spirit, well, how do we do this, right? How do we do this? We just pray hard enough, like come Tuesday night, that whole hour, then after I leave, I'm guaranteed to be joyful? No, you might be miserable. No, I'm not saying that, but, you know, you could, you know who knows? But it's not, it's not a formula as much as it is a discipline or a practice. I want to show you a report card, and I wish I could find mine, but this is a typical report card when I was in school. For the first eight grades, uh, elementary school, I was graded on conduct and plays well with others, as well as social studies, his, you know, social studies, math, and so forth and so on. This is not my, my report card, but it could be. Because uh, you see, improvement needed. There was a lot of eyes in the conduct area. I can recall when I went to school, the first grade, um, I had transferred. That's when we moved from Brooklyn to Queens. And um, I had a real difficulty adjustment in first grade, to which I remember my parents coming for the open school night and the, and the teacher saying uh, exactly this, uh, Joseph is a chatterbox. And I don't know when that, yeah. Uh, and and, and I, I thought that was a compliment, actually. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't. It wasn't, and I needed to, you know, curtail my conduct. Teachers graded us on plays well with others. I guess they were watching whether we were sharing or whether we learned to do certain things like that. And our conduct, how we talked to one another, that would, we were getting graded on that. I remember bringing my report card home to my dad. Remember, this is for eight grades we were, we were being um, graded on. And I can remember him looking at the report card. We had this ritual. We would bring our report cards first to my father to look at them, because we would have to walk them home. Um, and he would look at it, and he would, um, the first two grades he looked at is conduct and plays well with others. My father got a GED, didn't even graduate high school in a, in a traditional sense, got a GED, never went to college, right? He would look, like, you know, he would look so intently, and he would say, and I would get like B's and A's and the others, but, you know, my conduct and plays well with others were sometimes trying. And he would say to me, I can always get you a tutor for math, no doubt. I could pay for a tutor, but who's going to tutor you in conduct and plays well with others? Oops, I spent a lot of time in my room, um, <laughs> not because of math, but because of conduct early on. I wonder, when you think of the fruit of the spirit and you wonder how do we begin to talk about conduct, I wonder if we should start thinking about the fruit of the spirit as a virtue as something we need to practice, right? You know what I mean by virtues. You have these virtues that are part of what it means to be a human being, right? This goes all the way back to Aristotle, who said, you know, prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice were the four cardinal virtues. The word cardinal there meaning hinge. These are the hinge virtues. We can use a little bit of prudence, right, common sense in our society, right? We can use justice, fairness, right? Temperance, self-control, right? And how about fortitude, which C.S. Lewis calls guts? Those are good virtues. How do we teach those? 
Where do you learn those? Do you go on a retreat, a fortitude retreat? All right, Friday through Sunday, fortitude retreat, then I'll be courageous. No, I don't think you get courage that way, right? I don't think you learn, or prudence, right? Common sense, where do you learn common sense? Do you just go and read a book on common sense and you got it? It has to be practiced, it has to be practiced. And of course, there's a theological virtues from St. Paul, faith, charity, faith, hope, and charity, right, from 1 Corinthians 13. I wonder how Valley Point Church can continue to be a school of virtues, of teaching joy. Joy has to be taught. It's not a feeling. It has to be taught. You have to practice joy. And we'll get to that in a moment. We have to practice joy. Isn't it interesting? Uh, my brother's an attorney, and, uh, and he, has a, he has a law practice, but he knows what he's doing. You ever go to a medical practice? Do you think the doctor's saying, I'm just going to practice today. I'm not really sure what I'm doing. <laughs> Let me see. Is that a knee or is that your elbow? No. We use the word practice because it's a way of demonstrating kind of this repeat, right? This, this way of doing things over and over and over again. And that's what a virtue is. It's practicing a good behavior, practicing something over and over together in community to be affirmed and to be, to be loved. So if you're struggling with joy, maybe you just need to practice it. You need to put yourself in situations that will help you be able to grasp on that concept of joy. You have to practice it. Just like when you go to a batting range or a golf range, right? You go to a batting range for those who play baseball or softball, and you're practicing your swing um, you know how to hit the ball, but you keep practicing. It's repetitive over and over and over again is like a virtue. We need to do that. And of course, there are vices or the same thing. Vices are just bad habits that we practice over and over and over again. We're pretty habitual creatures, aren't we? We like habits, right? Joy is a habit. Okay, next one is the uh, second scripture, and then we'll bring it to a conclusion. This one really, really intrigued me in preparation for this message. This is from another letter in the New Testament, and it's an anonymous letter. We don't know who wrote it. Hebrews, so we know it was written to Jews. And it's a letter that probably circulated like an encyclical to a lot of people. And it talks about chapter 12. It picks up on, uh, right after chapter 11, which is the chapter on faith, right? Faith. We, we get the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Some of you know that. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the therefore is literally summarizing what comes before. But look at this text. This one has been just getting to me, right? Let me, let me read this. Therefore, since we, meaning us, contextualize it, us, Valley Point Church, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. Let's go to that next slide. That's, that's the one that really intrigued me. For the sake of the joy that was set before him, 
was Jesus, like, smiling? Can't wait to get to the cross. Can't wait. Did Jesus, was he happy? Was he enthusiastic about just wanting to the, can't wait to do the sacrifice for the world? Friends, I don't think so. Now, he goes voluntarily, but we know of the Garden of Gethsemane. We know of the, ang uh, the anguish and the struggle. But the writer to the Hebrews, I mean, it just kind of just knocked me off my chair, for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I think one of the things we don't focus in on as Christians is that joy and suffering are connected. Joy and suffering are connected. Meaning that being a person who's following Jesus in this world, looking at the fruit of the spirit of joy that does not eliminate suffering. Does not eliminate suffering. If you meet somebody who preaches a gospel that says, become a Christian and your life will be fine, no problems, no worry, um, that is not a gospel. That's a, that's a pitch. <laughs> that's a sales pitch, right? I remember the late Mike Iaconelli, who started Youth Specialties, came to the university in the late 1990s. He was our faith forum speaker. Really well-known, popular among students. This was the first line of the first chapel message he said. This is what he said. Gymnasium is packed with eager students just wanting to hear Mike Iaconelli. He said this, when I accepted Jesus Christ into my life, he ruined it. I thought, oh my God, am I paying this guy an honorarium? What is he going with this? You know, sometimes <laughs> Jesus ruins things in our lives because we're trying to find things that make us happy. We're doing things to make us happy rather than aspiring for joy beyond our circumstances there, beyond our circumstances. Friends, you may be suffering this morning. You may be wrestling with life and all its complexities. I don't know what you're dealing with, right? And the question you might have this morning is, I have no joy in my life. I don't, I don't feel it. And I'm saying to you, there is a difference between feeling and, and something about Christ, something that's steady, steadfast, and so forth. Joy doesn't destroy fear, it conquers it. Joy doesn't destroy fear, it conquers it. It's just like Jesus' death didn't destroy death. We still die, friends, but it conquered death. death. There is no sting with death for us. We need to reframe our sense of joy. We need to put ourselves in context in which we can be joyful with others, even in our difficult circumstances. I believe that joy is a partnership between God and us. Do you hear what I'm saying? God is in partnership with us with joy, meaning we have to put some intentionality for our own understanding of the fruit of the Spirit. It takes some sweat equity. It takes some discipline. It takes prayer. It takes the church. The church should be a place where the fruit of the Spirit is evident every time we gather amongst us. So that joy doesn't become this abstract idea that 
You know, some people have it, but you know, Bob, he'll never get joy. You ever talk to Bob? Holy man, this guy's the crankiest guy. And if your name is Bob, I apologize. I know I'm not talking about you. But you understand what I'm getting at, right? It's not about personality. It's not about circumstances, although circumstances can be dire and it can be problematic. It's about working with God, the grace of God, the grace of God. It's interesting that the word for joy in New Testament Greek is the word kara, C-H-A-R-A, kara, which is related to charis, which is grace. Isn't that interesting? Joy and grace overlap. Isn't that interesting? So God's grace is always available to us. It's unmerited favor. God's grace is available to us. We need to find the joy in God's grace in a community that we aspire to work with God in the circumstances in our lives. So if you're suffering this morning, and we do know of people who have suffered and yet remain joyful. I'll end on this story. At Eastern University, and I see we have some students here, both graduate and current, You'll, and also some of my colleagues are here from the lacrosse team. I didn't tell the story in the 1970s that I played college lacrosse, uh, which was uh, not, we weren't really good, not because of me, but we just weren't. It was a tough, tough, tough decade for, for lacrosse. Our students will know we have a building on campus uh, called the Mall Cottage. And uh, the mall cottage is where you go if you have a billing concern, financial aid, and so forth and so on. The person who worked in that building for 17 years, Janet Long, dear colleague, I can remember the day when she got in touch with myself and a few others, uh, noting that she had, she had been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it didn't look good. And of course, what does that mean? As Christians, we just go and visit. We go and visit. We don't go with answers, we go with presence. We just want to be with Janet in this journey, radiation, chemotherapy, and so forth. And it's interesting, if you ever walked alongside a person who's suffering, which would became a terminal disease, you know, there sometimes when you're laughing together because of some joke or some situation that you're, you're describing, other times it's really sad, deeply sad, deeply emotional. Janet Long was one of the few people that I saw joy in the midst of great suffering. As a, as a follower of Jesus, she remained joyful, although all of everything that was surrounding her was speaking to her, her death but she remained joyful. She wasn't happy about cancer. I mean, no one's happy about getting cancer, but she remained joyful. One thing Janet did say to me and a few others that visited her, she said, we asked Janet, what, what are you most concerned about? <laughs> you know, maybe it was a dumb question. Maybe she's concerned about, you know. She said, you know, I'm not really worried about the cancer. I'm just worried about being forgotten. I worry about being forgotten. So I was with the president of the university at the time and the provost. We, we went, we, three of us went to visit. And as we were driving back, that really hit us. Like we, it was quiet in the car. I don't know if you've driven a long time when everyone, you know what they're thinking about? We're thinking, until the idea came 
why don't we name the mall cottage after her? The mall cottage, why don't we name it after her? We thought about it, we, you know, what are the technicalities and all? And we did. We did. Not that she was looking to have a building named after her, but it was a great example. When I look at the building now, it's called the Janet Long Mall Cottage, I think, joy in suffering. Joy in suffering. A person that understood that joy was something deep, deeply rooted in a relationship with God, and that she practiced joy every visit that we had, even though the circumstances were dire. And she died at 55 years old. Friends, that's what we want to aspire to. It's a virtue, joy. It's not, and I have the last slide here, and then I'll pray. This is from Pastor Sam Storms. I think it's a great quote. Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It is the presence of God. I end this morning with a prayer from John Henry Newman, who was an Anglican who converted to Catholicism and became a cardinal. He died in 1890. He died in 1890. It's a prayer involving joy. So let me pray this, and then we'll bring it back to, to others. Let's pray together. Help me to spread your joy everywhere I go. Let me preach you without preaching, not by words, but by my example, by the catching force, the sympathetic influence of what I do, the evident fullness of the love my heart bears to you. Amen and amen. May we be joyful people.